Okay. Well, we're in Matthew chapter 23. We're going to try and get through. And Jesus is basically in these last, the last chapter and this one here is dealing with the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, even the Sadducees. He is confronting them. They are trying to trap him. And we see that he's not going to be trapped. And instead, he actually turns the the table and he starts giving us some warnings. And this is kind of one of those heavy chapters. You know, if you were looking for a nice, warm, encouraging message, I'm sorry. Um, Actually, I think it'll be very encouraging, but it is something that kind of slaps us a little bit and helps us to really see what things are important. So starting at verse 1, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He comes right out. He's unafraid, even though these men are plotting to kill him. And he is aware of it. He doesn't pull any punches. He gives a warning because the warning is so important and so necessary for us to understand. When you hear Jesus bringing condemnation like this, most of the time, I mean, most of the time, over 90% of the time, it is directed towards the religious leaders those who are in places of authority spiritually, which should make me uneasy, and anyone else in positions of authority in the area of spiritual teaching. And here he's real clear on what he's saying. He's basically calling them hypocrites. And he's saying, oh, you have to listen to who what they say because they're in positions of authority, but don't do what they do. Because they put on these burdens. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. The whole idea here is they're using people. Now, this is such a contrast from Jesus. 
And what he said in chapter 11, when he said, come to me, all you that labor and are burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn it from me, for I am gentle, humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's here to lift our burdens. These people are here to put burdens on them. And the burden they're putting on them, it's real important that we understand, is one of religious obligation, ceremonial obligation. If you want to get to God, you have to jump through these hoops and you have to do the things that we instruct you to do. We are your means of knowledge on how to get to God. Come to us. We'll help you get to God and you have to do. And then they would put these heavy burdens on them. And that's where we see Jesus getting the most upset. And it's so contrary to who he was and what he did. When he threw the tables over in the temple and he said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. We talked about how they've brought obstruction to getting to God. And whenever that takes place, Jesus doesn't pull his punches. He's real clear on how he feels. And anytime someone puts a burden on you and your relationship to get to God, this is how Jesus feels. And so he gives these list of things. He says, everything is done for people to see in verse 5. They make their phylacteries. Now, the phylactery is a leather prayer case worn on the forehead and on the left arm at daily morning prayers. It contained four passages of Scripture, two from Exodus, two from Deuteronomy. It was kind of to show that they had been people of prayer. Well, they wanted everyone to know. And so it was kind of their way of boasting about how spiritual they were, boasting about the fact that, yes, I was in the morning prayer and look at the phylacteries that I have. Look at the tassels that I have. Those tassels or the borders of the garment are from Numbers chapter 15. It was to remind them of the Lord's commands, but they wore them not as a reminder of the Lord's commands, but wanted people to think about them. Think about us, how we acknowledge the Lord today, how we have done these things. Places of honor and seats in the synagogue. They would sit in the synagogue and they would actually face the people and they would have the Torah behind him. I think it's so interesting because these were those prominent seats and you've probably been there at those churches where the pastor is up there and then there's people sitting behind them facing. Isn't that the weirdest thing? It's just... I, and I've sat in those seats on a couple occasions and it's like, hi, everybody. You know, you're staring at everyone there. And it's just so strange. When I was in Haiti, not this last year, the year before, we were in this one place and it was remote. And I didn't get any sleep that night. I slept in a tent next to some goats and all these other things that were going on. They're having a big party. And so me and the other guy who was sleeping, who was doing the service in the morning, woke up. Neither one of us had slept. And I, you know, I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting there. And I haven't slept. They're speaking in Creole. 
you know, and the, the service goes on for hours, like two and a half hours long. And so I'm sitting there, no sleep in the hot, you know, I mean, we had shade, but it was hot. And I'm just sitting there facing all these people. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm going to fall asleep. And the only way I could keep from falling to sleep is say, I just need to look at who's looking at me because I'm one of the only white guys there. And I was a spectacle, and so I'd just look around. Oh, they're looking at me. And then they'd look away, and I was like, okay, find someone else who's looking at me. They're looking at me, okay. And, and that's how I kept awake. That was what I did for two and a half hours long. Anyway, they like to be in the seats where people are looking at them. They want to be in the seats where they have the attention. This is what they desire, is attention. And... and He says that they like to be called rabbi by others. They they want that. The word rabbi is actually, it has different ways to interpret it. It means teacher, but it also means master. The word rab without the I means master. Rabbi is my master or my teacher. They want that prominence. They want to have that title. They want to have that position. They want to be people who have authority. That should challenge us and how we think about these things. Because now he goes on and he says, but you, verse 8, are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let me ask you, and you guys know this is coming. Questions are a part of tonight. Do you think Jesus' intent is that Absolutely no one should ever be called teacher or father. Do you think that's what he's trying to get at? I'm seeing people shake their heads. No, you can. No. What do you think? Why do you think he is saying this? What's the point? I mean, he tells us the point here. It's not a secret. Just want you to say it. In the Lord, so don't put your hope in a person, but put your hope in the Lord instead. Okay, that's good. What? Any other thoughts just on this, Tony? Not to elevate a person. Ben? The voice. We should make a TV show. Um, well, I, I think, yeah, it encompasses those things. Any other thoughts? It's because what God is doing spiritually. You know, the idea of rabbi, teacher, father, uh, instructor, all these things, what he, he's talking about here is being a person of honor. It's not that you can't call teacher Terry, teacher Terry. Okay, it's not that you're elevating her to a special position. You're acknowledging what she does. It's not like my kids can't call me father. They've never called me father. They call me, yeah, dad. But, you know, oh, father, <laughs> who are you? <laughs> I didn't raise no child to call me father. Uh, it's not that they can't have that terminology or those sayings. It's that they are not supposed to put that position of being above on someone else. And I love what he says here because 
he says in verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. I love that. That's, if you're brothers, now if you have a brother, do you call your brother teacher? Do you call your brother master? What are the chances of that ever happening with brothers? Do you think that's going to happen? Not unless they've got you in a headlock and they make you say uncle, right? <laughs> but it's not something that, that's not how brothers, because you're, you're no better than me. You're the same as me. You're just my brother. I can act that way with you if I want to. At least that's what I get from my knowledge of brothers and my knowledge of kids who have brothers. It's, we're on the same plane. You're not above me. And so you can't act as if you are. So, I have to hit on this because this is one of my points. So what are some other titles that could fall into these categories? Class? Pastor? Thank you. Eileen, pastor. Now, does it mean pastor is a bad title? Is a pastor different than a brother? Same, right? You're all brothers. So pastor is not above. It's a title. When the title becomes a position that's placed above, it becomes a problem. Just like rabbi, just like father, just like teacher. So it's not the title that's the problem, it's the position that it gets placed in. And so, if someone demands that you call them pastor, or acknowledge them in a position of more respect, is that good? Or would Jesus be talking at them? Michael? <laughs> He'd be talking at them. Just wanted to get that on tape. For... Yes, Eileen. Reverend? Yep, Reverend. There's a number of titles, and it just... It, it, the title isn't the issue, it's what is placed in it. And that's important, because I don't want you to go rebelling against all pastors. You know, I'm not going to call you pastor. It's just a title. But the position that's placed in a person, any person, be they pastor, be they priest, be they bishop, be they rabbi, a position that's placed as being better than you is what Jesus is talking about. And he's talking about it pretty heavy. He's not pulling punches. This is a big deal to Jesus. And so it should be a big deal to us. This idea of the level playing field is very important because you deal with a brother different than you do someone who you think you can master. Make sense? You're going to act differently. You're going to feel like you have the right to push them around, to be demanding, to require things of them if you feel you are above them. And Jesus is saying, you're all brothers. You're not to act this way. In fact, he kind of sums it up and he says that those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's God's position. 
Those who humble themselves don't try and take on a title, don't try and take on a better position, don't try and see themselves as above. God's going to exalt them. Now, when he means exalt them, he means he's giving them precedence. He sees them, acknowledges them, gives them favor. That's how God exalts. Those who see themselves high, oh, they might be exalted in men's eyes, but in God's eyes, he's going to hold them accountable. In fact, Jesus goes on, and in dealing with this topic, he's going to give us seven woes. Oh boy, the seven woes of Jesus. And they have to deal with just this thing. And so this will be fun. He's going to talk about teachers of the law, Pharisees, hypocrites. And we know that the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, these are the people who are religious, hierarchy, the people who the people would look up to as saying, you're the ones who give us understanding of the scriptures. You're the one who represents God to us with the priests. And a hypocrite, the word literally means to wear a mask. We get our idea of an actor. It's the idea of showing a false face. And so... Even though Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, I think any time we put on that false face, some of this is going to be applying to us. So I don't want you all feeling too safe here. I want this to hit home where it does. Because we can all, in fact, we do all play the hypocrite at times. We do. And maybe we'll see ourselves in some of these things that he's talking about. So the first woe, chapter 13 to 14. I just think the word woe, it's kind of a strange word, but I think we all get the sense of it. It's not good. You know, this is something that is not good. It's alas, this is bad. There, another word, alas, that's one we use all the time. Okay, so it says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. You shut the door, you don't enter, and you don't let others enter into. How were they shutting the door of the kingdom in people's faces? How were these people, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, these hypocrites, how were they shutting the door of the kingdom in the faces of the people? Tony. So, and who is the door? Jesus, right? John 10 tells us, I am the door. And you see, I think, you know, they were doing just that. They were wanting the people to see them and not God. But really what they were doing is trying to keep the people from seeing Jesus. They were putting the pressure on Jesus, trying to belittle him because they didn't like the authority that he had. And so I think the way that they were really trying to shut the door was trying to discredit Jesus. And when they started discrediting Jesus, they were only not only shutting the door, but they weren't entering in. They weren't believing in Jesus, and they were trying to stop others from doing the same thing. And so I think this comes really at the heart of 
what Jesus's message of these woes are. It's about that relationship that they had to him. Remember, he has just pressed on them that he is the Messiah. Remember the last chapter, whose son is the Messiah? Well, it's David. Then how by the spirit does David call him Lord? And basically he was saying that the Messiah is the son of God and that's who he's claiming to be. And so this is the confrontation that Jesus is the Messiah and you're shutting the door. You don't want people to see who I am. You won't see who I am and you're trying to stop everyone from getting to that place. And so that's kind of the scenario that's taking place right here. And as he's talking to them, this is the dynamic that's happening. They are wanting to keep everyone from Jesus. Their plots to kill him. They're trying to get everyone to acknowledge them. Here is Jesus, the truth. Don't look at him. Don't look at the truth. Don't follow him. Look at us. That's where Jesus is really coming down heavy on them. And so he goes on to the next woe in verse 15. This woe has the idea of converts. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. <laughs> Powerful words. Again, when Jesus uses powerful words, most of the time in the context is in this regard, those who are hindering people from coming to him or to God. Now, this is very likely based on some historical conflicts that were taking place between the Jews and even those in Rome. In that time the Jews were actually expelled from Rome for a period of time because they were being so demonstrative and trying to bring converts that they were causing problems. And you have to understand there was something very appealing about this understanding of one God in a culture that believed in a million gods, in a culture that didn't have the kind of morality that this religion did, it was very appealing. It made sense because it was true. And so they had a lot going for them in the fact that they had the truth. And so they would go far to try and make disciples, but they would push so hard that Rome said, get out of our city or we're going to kill you. And so for a period of time, they were actually banished from Rome. And then slowly they started being able to come back in. And then Paul writes to the Romans, and that's kind of the context that he's dealing with in there when he's writing to those Christians who are in Rome and telling them, you got to be careful. You don't fall under those legalistic rules that were before because those rules were being pushed so hard that they were causing problems. And then what would happen? Most of the people who were converted became even more demonstrative in their thinking. They didn't only become converted, they became per perverted in how much they pushed this. You got to think what conversion meant. For someone who was going to be converted, they would have to be circumcised. 
they would have to now start following the dietary laws and all the religious obligations, and they became militant. They became the worst. Because now they came from this culture, they were sold this is how you have to live, and they were going to live it, and they were going to push it. And that's why he says, you make them twice the child of hell as you are, because now they are so caught up in their own acts, the own things that they do that make them right before God, that they've missed the boat. It's all now self-righteousness, and they are the most self-righteous people there are. Begs the question, do we raise people up to be like that? What do you think? Yeah? How so? What have you seen, or how does that show up with us in, in the church? Well, and I think pride is at the heart of these things. When you become proud in what you are doing or what you have become. You know, let's face it. If someone was living as a drunk and they came to faith and they gave up drinking, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. But if then they go and they say, you need to stop drinking just like I stopped drinking. You need to be like me. I, I used to be bad like you and I used to be like this. You're going to hell. I'm going to heaven. Is that representing accurately Jesus? Or are they now using themselves as the example and the fact that I stopped drinking is now the reason why I'm right with God? You see what I'm saying? The reason you're right with God is because Jesus died for you. There is no other reason you can be right with God. And so giving up the alcohol was a good thing. Yay. We're glad. You're a much nicer person. You smell better. You come home at better hours in the night. I mean, it's just a good thing all around. But that is not why you are right with God. It wasn't because of the things you did. It's always because of what Jesus did. And when it turns into my actions result in why I am good, why I am better than you, and you need to be like me, then that's where there's a problem. And this is what Jesus is talking about. They become twice the child of hell as you because they are more self-righteous than you. And you see, all these things, are, it's real easy to look, oh yeah, tell them, Jesus. Tell those Pharisees. But these are our warnings. He, he's writing them for us. And I've been in this position. I've been that person who, whose life has been turned around by God and then told people that they needed to start or stop doing the things that they were doing because I used to do those things too. I've been the self-righteous Christian. I know what that's like. I've been there. And these words are for me as well as for the Pharisees at that time. He goes on and gives them another woe. This is about oaths and swearing. In verse 16, he says, Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by the oath. 
you blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes that gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And if anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Whoa. Okay. So now he's talking about oath swearing to God. Now, the idea of swear to God, <laughs> if God was brought into this in some way, if we brought God into my oath, now it became more important because we invoked God into it. So now it's not just an oath between you and I. It's an oath between you and I and God is looking in. And so if we bring the temple in or we bring the sacrifice or anything that we can bring in about somehow now it means more because we've brought God into this point. We've asked him to be here in it. And, and Jesus goes on and he points out their folly and that all these oaths that they make, they matter. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, Jesus said in chapter 5. And so the earth belongs to God and the heavens belong to God. And when you make a promise, it doesn't matter what the promise includes. It's going to be important. And their idea of, well, I'm going to invoke God's name and it's going to become more important just showed them how foolish because they started really finding ways that they could evade their oaths. Well, I didn't swear on the temple. Oh, okay, I guess you can lie then. Well, I didn't swear to God. It was just between you and me. Oh, I guess it's okay then. You can break that promise. That promise isn't as important as this promise. And he's saying that's foolish. But this is, again, what happens when you start trying to legislate everything. You can find a loophole. It's like that old W.C. Fields movie when he's reading the Bible and they go, you're reading the Bible? And he goes, I'm looking for loopholes. <laughs> if you make everything legalistic, then it becomes like a lawyer. I'm going to find a way out of this. Oh, I'm going to swear by this, not by this. Therefore, I'm not held in this response. And Jesus is saying, the earth is the Lord's, the heavens is the Lord's. Your yes needs to be yes. Your no is no. Okay, let's go to woe for giving. Verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Now, when Jesus is talking about these things that they give, when he talks about the mint the dill and the cumin, those were small things. They were required or asked of God to give a tenth of their harvest. It was an offering to the Lord. It was what they were supposed to do. 
It's recorded in Numbers, I think, chapter 25. And so that was the law. That was required of them. And then what the Pharisees did to show how much more they gave, they went out to their backyard garden where they were growing spices that they would use. You know, it's like you get the little parsley or something like that. I'm going to give a tenth of my parsley. It's like, oh, boy, a tenth. But you see, that's how, I, that's how committed I am. I give everything to God, even these little herbs that I grow in my garden. And so the idea here is I give more than the other people. I give to the smallest degree everything to God. But Jesus deals with the real issue because even though they gave these little things, they neglected, and he says more important things. And, and I think that's telling because it's showing that there are things that are more important. And these things that are more important are things that are relational with people, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, he doesn't say you shouldn't give the other. He said you shouldn't have neglected the other things, but you first should have given the important things. And so that's kind of what he's addressing here. Are there any ways that we can do things similar to this? Let me ask you this. Is, are there ever a time when you justify maybe your lack of mercy because of what you do in another area? See what I'm saying? It's like, well, I do this for God. You know, I get up every morning, I, I go to church, and I, you know, serve, or every Sunday I get up and I set up and I'm there, or I do this for God, or I put in this check, I give money, and because I give money, I don't have to show mercy. I don't have to act this way towards people. I don't have to act justly because this is what I do. Now, no one says it like that. Because that's obvious, right? But is there ever a time where that creeps in into your attitude? Something presses you. The Spirit of God presses you. I want you to show mercy towards this person. And you say, I don't need to do that. I do enough. Has everyone ever had that happen with them? Just me? <laughs> me and my wife. We, we raise our hands. You see, just because you do this, it doesn't take away your responsibility for the more important things. And the more important things are mercy, justice, and faithfulness. And those have to deal with our relationship with others as well as our relationship with God. And so this is, again, challenging us to be genuine, to be people who recognize that when God asks something of us, it can't be just written down on a ledger that, okay, I've, I've fulfilled my duty. I've done enough. In fact, I gave a little bit of parsley. Know what I'm saying? I, I've given a little bit more. I gave a little bit more this month, or I did a little bit more. Therefore, I'm not obligated to these other things. And what we do is try and appease our conscience that I don't have to give in these other areas. And Jesus is saying, don't neglect the important things. Don't neglect the other things, but don't neglect the important things. And so he's contrasting those. Does that make sense? 
Woe number five, verse 25. Hey, we're doing good on time. I wasn't sure how we'd make it through here. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He just says this over and over again. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, blind Pharisees. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. And so he's talking about cleanliness, and the idea of cleanliness in that culture especially was very important to the Jewish culture. It was not a matter of really being dirty. It was more a matter of not being able to come before God. You see, you couldn't enter the temple and worship God if you had touched a dead body or touched a Gentile. A woman couldn't enter into the temple and worship if it was that time of month for her. If you were unclean by any of these things and you touched something or someone else, it too became unclean. And so the idea of cleanliness was actually dealing with their access to God. And Jesus then comes here and he says, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Now, when he says the outside of the cup and then he says the inside is full of greed and indulgence, what is he talking about? Is he talking about a literal cup? What is he talking about? About them. A person, right? A cup can't be greedy. A cup can't be self-indulgent. And so the point here that he's making is if your heart is unclean, what, is, what good is it to go through the right motions? If inside something's wrong, what good is it to do all the outside stuff? See, there's a problem in there. How do we go through these motions? What are some examples of what we could do in this way? It's kind of the same vein that we've been talking about. Any things jump into your mind? I got a bunch of things I've done, but I want, to, I want you to confess. Uh, any thoughts of how we can clean the outside? Kind of putting on that face, putting on a false face. Yeah. I, I think there are a lot of areas where we can, you know, this can apply to us, where we do put on that false face, where we do look okay, but inside there is greed and self-indulgence. I mean, those, those words that he used really strike me. Greed, self-indulgence, where... I'm acting like I'm loving and caring, but really who I really love and care about is me. I'm saying, oh, yeah, I love you. I'm here to, to help, brother. I'm here to do this, but really I'm just doing it for myself. I'm doing it to position myself, to elevate myself, to manipulate. You know, I'm going to stroke you so that you think I'm better and think, oh, yeah, he's so nice to me. He's such a great guy, but really I'm doing it to position myself so that you'll think more of me, so that you'll think and, and show more you know, respect to me, those kinds of things. And, and I think it, because I like to have people think highly of me, I 
I'm very aware of how people think of me. Yes? No, that's a great question. Yeah, why, why should we do some, I mean, what's the difference between doing something even though we know it's the right thing to do and don't want to do it and what he's talking about here. I think the difference here is this is being done for greed and self-indulgence. You know, unlike just, well, I know it's the right thing to do to show kindness, even though I really want to, you know, punch you out or do those, I just am aggravated with you, I'm going to still show kindness is the right thing to do. Well, you should always do the right thing. The, the difference here would be I'm going to show kindness so that I can look better. Okay, so that I can get more, or I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this position as a leader in the church so that I can get an advantage over people and utilize a position to control people or get money, things like that. That would be greed and self-indulgent. I'm gonna use this to advantage me. Because we should still do good even when we don't feel like it. We just need to deal with our hearts, you know, and acknowledge it, which is what you mentioned, you know, sometimes gotta, just, okay, I shouldn't be here, but I still need to kind of go through what is right and do what is right. That makes sense? Okay. Woe number six. <laughs> Verse 27. I'm going to talk about unclean. This is very similar to what he just said. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, at that time there were a lot of tombs, a lot of graves on the sides of the road, because that's where people had access to. You, if you had to go bury someone, you wouldn't go to a graveyard. They didn't have them. You would just go off somewhere, go off to the side of the road, and then you'd put a grave and maybe put a stone over it. You guys ever, like, gone to Vizcaino? You see all on the side of the roads, there's all these little tombstones, you know, from the people who've crashed and they've died here on the, the car. That's not going to make you guys want to go to Vizcaino, but... And so that's kind of the same thing. There would be these little graves all along the side of the road. But say Passover week is coming and they're going to Passover and you've got this whole time that's supposed to be a feast of celebration. If you were to step on one of those graves, you would be unclean. Now imagine you've been walking for hundreds of miles to come to the Passover and you accidentally step on one of the graves and you can't partake of the feast because you're now unclean. So what they would do is they would, before the Passover, they would paint all the graves along the side of the road white so that they stood out. So that the people walking, they would see, oh, be, be careful, there's a tomb there. It's just whitewashed, it's covered in you know, white so that it would stand out. And so the idea was, okay, yeah, we can see that, we won't step on them, that way we don't, you know, make ourselves unclean. And so Jesus is saying here, yeah, you've done all this and your outside is clean, but you're not like the whitewash. You're the inside of the tomb. You're, you are so filthy that you're not just the tombstone. You're full of the dead men's bones. That's how rotten you are. Outside, you look very religious, but inside, you are just rotten. 
And again, the words that he used here that showing how unclean, I guess, they are is you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Putting on the false face and you're just wicked. Wickedness. What, what comes to mind when you think of wicked? Not the play. That came to your mind, didn't it? That's a great play, but um, go ahead. People that do harm to others, wicked. Any other thoughts come to mind? Wicked? Evil. Something's wrong, they do it anyway. I think it does have to do with harming. I think wickedness has to do with bringing harm to others, you know. Um, yeah, malicious. And so, have you ever been wicked? Intentionally tried to bring hurt, maybe verbally, maybe emotionally. I know this will really get them, and so I've said it. There's times where I've said things, and as soon as I've said it, I thought that was the most wicked thing to say. And so I, I just want to bring us to this place where we can go to church on Sunday and we can still act wicked. And so these things do apply to us in so many ways. Okay, woe number seven. Almost done with the woes here. Verse 29. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so, so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. Wow. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all, the, all this will come on this generation. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, they would tend to the tombs of the martyrs. They would decorate them. They would show homage to them. And yet here they are plotting to kill Jesus. And so Jesus confronts that very clearly. And the reason he mentions Abel and Zechariah and those orders in the Hebrew Bible, again, Genesis in the beginning, Abel was the first one who was murdered. And in the Hebrew Bible, Second Chronicles was actually the last book, and Zechariah is the last person who is, again, martyred. And so from the beginning to end, you are just doing the same thing. And when you hear Jesus talking in this way, I, I wonder what his emotion was. I wonder what his demeanor is as he's talking and he's calling them snakes, brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? 
I wonder if he's angry. I wonder if he's weeping. I wonder what's going on within him. But there is no mistaking what he is saying here. And he's talking about them, how they are paying homage to the prophets of old, but they're plotting murder themselves. And verse 32 says, go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. They started with the prophets. You're going to end with the Son of God. And that's exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. Very telling and very chilling. And very wicked. How can people who are religious, who are supposed to speak for God, be so contrary to God? And, and if we ever feel that that's not us, woe to us. I know recently of a pastor who used his position. And in that position, he ended up having affairs with a number of women in his church, all the while going to the pulpit and preaching about Jesus. How does that happen? It's the wickedness that takes place. And so those things that, that come out that are there within these people, Jesus is, is not turning a blind eye to them. And it applies as much to the pastor today as it did to the Pharisee back then. And it applies to anyone who names the name of Christ and how they act and react towards people. And so harsh words, right? I mean, this isn't our, this isn't the friendly Jesus of, you know, blessed are those who are meek. This is you brood of vipers, you snakes, you're going to hell. Um, and he tells them the truth and he, he puts it down. But again, remember who he's talking to, remember the context. Because this verse is meant for those who have an understanding and they're using that to manipulate and control. He goes on and he kind of sums this up. And I, I just love this because as you read these things and again, you get this idea of man, Jesus is, is ticked off. He's really hammering home. You get to the end of the passage here and we really see the heart of God in Jesus. Verse 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A few things that we see here in Jesus. First thing is we see patience. You killed the prophets. You, you stoned those who were sent to you. But God didn't cast them off. God was still reaching out to them. I think that's amazing. 
how often you've done these things. You've stoned those sent to you. You've killed the prophets, those who spoke to God. And remember, when a prophet would speak, what they were doing was declaring the covenant that God had made with the people. They weren't just telling the future. I know that's a lot of times what we think a prophet does. In the Hebrew mind, a prophet was declaring the covenant that they had broken. He was there saying, God wants to remind you of your covenant, your responsibility to him. You have broken that covenant. So they were declaring that covenant gap that was taking place. God was there trying to get back to this place. That's what the prophets were doing. You need to turn. This is where you're at. And they would say it in all kinds of ways and very powerful, very symbolic, very graphic. And it was always trying to bring them back to the place of the covenant they had made. And so Jesus comes and he says, you've killed the prophets, stoned those who God has sent to you. That's God's patience. And then there's the appeal of God. How I have longed to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. The appeals, this is the heart of God. This is what God wants. I've wanted to gather you. And he's still wanting that at this time. That's why he's there. He's there to give his life to gather them. And so he's appealing to them, wanting to gather them. And then it shows the choice that they have to make. It says, but you were not willing. You were not willing. It wasn't that you couldn't. You weren't willing. I wanted to gather you, but you weren't willing. My kids are small and they'd be upset at something and you try and hug them and they give you this little stiff, no, I don't want you to hug me. They're not willing. God's trying to hug the nation Israel. He's trying to gather them, but they're like, no, not willing. And then we see the consequences. Look, your house is left desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And so there has to be the consequence of their rejection of the Messiah. There's the, the prophetic desolation that's going to be taking place in Jerusalem and to the Jewish nation for a period of time. And this is actually going to lead into chapter 24. Uh, and then he says, blessed is he, you know, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There has to be the understanding and recognition of the Messiah. If you want to see me again, this is how it's going to happen. You have to recognize who I am. And so how, that's how Jesus ends this little dialogue with the Pharisees. Any things in this passage that stand out to you guys that maybe you'd like to share or any questions on these verses? The religious Pharisees? I don't know. Do they call them Pharisees? Well, I don't think so. I don't think they have the same role. I think that role was at Jerusalem in that time. I don't think they're called Pharisees. I mean, there's rabbis, and there's so many different you know, forms of Judaism now, but I don't think it's the same. Any other thoughts or questions? No? Okay. Well, let's pray. But before we pray... Um, 
I want to acknowledge this is the last time Marianne's going to be here with us. She's going to be going to Florida the last Thursday. She'll be here Sunday. But for those of you who won't be here Sunday, I wanted just to take a little time at least tonight and pray for Marianne um, as she's going to be going to Florida. And when do you leave again? Okay, so next week she's going to be gone. So let's close in prayer and let's just lift Marion in this journey she's going to be going to. Father, I, I thank you for, again, the scripture here tonight and the challenge that it is to my heart, Father, how you confront me with being genuine, with being merciful, with being just, not being hypocritical or wicked. I thank you that you keep pushing us towards this place, Lord. You are so good. You reach after us time and time again. You don't cast us off, Lord. You are gracious, and we are grateful for that love, for longing to bring us to yourself. Lord, may we respond. May we not reject you. May we be willing, Lord. And Father, I want to lift up Marion to you, Lord, as she's going to be starting a new chapter in her life and moving to Florida next week. Lord, I pray that you would give her peace. I know she said she's a little nervous. She's excited but nervous. Lord, I pray that you would give her a calm spirit, that she would sense and know that you are with her, that she would lift these worries to you, that she wouldn't be anxious about it, but she would put these cares on you knowing that you care for her and that you would Take away the anxiety, Lord, and you would guard her heart and her mind in you, Father. We thank you for the time we've been able to be a part of her life and enjoy her company and conversation, Lord. May you continue to richly bless her as she moves forward. We do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.